that was too funny. I was sitting there listening the whole time we were having testimonies. And the mystery of Babylon is about half of what I was going to talk about tonight. So I think it's funny how Yahweh works, except it's not mystery Babylon. To me, I don't even understand the phrase mystery Babylon. I'm just going to talk about Babylon. How about that? But um, anyway, I'm thankful to be here. Thankful that all you guys are here. Uh, I've never stood in front of a crowd with 600 people in it, so I'm impressed. Anyhow, I'm thankful to be here. Love all you guys. Thankful for Pentecost. And um, I didn't prepare a message on Pentecost. However, I'll, I'll mention Pentecost a couple of times tonight, and so at least we covered the day. Man, oh man, over the next couple of weeks, or the next several weeks, I guess, kind of switching in and out here, who teaches? It'll take probably 11 or 12 weeks to cover this book, to do it right. And so... um. Before we get started, I'd like to, everybody, even on the, on the radio sermon, I mean on the radio ministry, if you, would, if you want to take notes, by all means, take notes. I'm going, to li- I'm going to lay an outline out tonight for the book of James, and uh, we'll go over, I'm only going to cover one verse tonight, but uh, I'm going to lay an outline out. So if you want to take notes, bullet points, things like that, I think that over the next 11 or 12 weeks, this will be a really, really good teaching for everybody, whether young or small. You know, or younger, younger, old, not younger, small, small or big. But uh, anyway, we'll get started. And uh, thanks for thanks for letting me teach. And and um, I said happy. Tim said happy Pentecost. <laughs> All right. Over the next week, I'd like to a few weeks. I'd like to take a journey through the Book of James. I think studying this book will edify the congregation in several ways. It's full of faith-building teachings for everyone, whether you're starting as a babe you know, in the faith, or you're already well on your way in your spiritual journey in service to Yahweh. The book of James is simply a letter written to a people encouraging, to encourage them as well as to exhort them in their faith. And as we go through the book, I think you'll see the author James believed in having a, a living, practicing, everyday faith, a faith that included works. His approach, his approach was not just one of, of just a confession of faith, but instead a righteous, working, true, saving faith. I believe that a true, saving faith should be our priority. I believe that a true, saving faith should be our priority, not just a confession, not a walk to an altar, not a say, I believe in him, a true, working faith. That should, it should be our priority in our life. So, After all, none of us want to hear those dreadful words from our master, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The book of James is going to show us how to have that true saving faith. One with works that will grant us those, will grant us those blessed words from our master, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter in. So in order to study the book of James, we'll, we'll just take it one verse at a time. And by the end, maybe we'll know more about the true faith and the teachings of Yahweh through the writing of James. Today's lesson is just an introduction to the book. We're only going to cover one verse and then we'll do an overview over the rest of the book. Then the next time I teach, I'll begin verse-by-verse study. So to get started, let's read James 1. 1. If you're not there, I'll give you a couple seconds. It's after the book of Hebrews. All right, James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a slave of the Almighty and of the Lord Yeshua the Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. 
All we have here is an introduction. It's just an opening to a letter. It tells us who's writing the letter, which is James, and who's he writing it to, which is the 12 tribes. I said it was funny that everybody mentioned the 12 tribes of Israel. All throughout testimony, I think that Yahweh organized this because I would never have taught on this. But uh, but anyway, so since it's since that's what we're dealing with, here we go. So to begin with, who is James? The text only tells us that he's a slave to the Almighty and to the Lord Yeshua. He doesn't regard himself as an apostle. There were actually two apostles named James. And he doesn't regard himself as the brother of Christ in, in his letter, this letter here. Either of these theories could be true, could be true, but we simply can't be sure because the text doesn't say. I think the majority of scholars lean towards the fact that James is Yeshua's brother. He's the leader of the, the elder of the Sanhedrin that's mentioned in Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21. Either way, I think you'll find James as an obedient man who is after Yahweh's own heart through his allegiance and service to Yahweh's son, Yeshua the Christ. James calls himself a slave of the Almighty and the Son. The word slave here in the Greek is the word doulos. It, it, it has several meanings, but, but I'll give you three. The first meaning would be one who gives himself up to another's will. The second meaning would be devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interest. And the third meaning just means a servant. And I think that's what it means. He's just a servant. We call somebody Lord or Master. That means we're their servant. We call we call Yeshua Lord. He is our Master. We do what he says to do. The same, the same goes for Yahweh. So, so James is saying he is devoted to the will of Yahweh. He's deprived of his, of his personal freedom and bound to him through faith in his son. That same phrase, doulos, or slave of the Almighty, is used in the Old Testament of Daniel. Old Testament about Daniel, Moses, Joshua, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, and the other prophets. So no matter so no matter who James is, whether he was one of the apostles or the brother of the Messiah, we can be assured on one thing because of his personal confession, he was a slave to Yahweh and his son. Now the second part of this verse tells us who the letter is written to. It reads, To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. An immediate question that should be raised is who, is it, who are the 12 tribes? This question in itself could start an extensive study that would take months or even years and would prolong teaching this book for just as much time. But because I don't want to study something and leave part of it undone, we'll cover it in minor detail. And if you want to go back and study it further, like Doug's doing, then you can do that on your own time, or you can just ask Tim. He can, <laughs> he can enlighten you. Yeah. <laughs> so who are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Some Bibles might say scattered abroad. You can, you know, different translations render it a little bit different. But some Bibles might say scattered abroad. Dispersed or scattered abroad mean the same thing, that something was removed from its original place. The word dispersed comes from the Greek word diaspora, which just means scattered. And so often the scattered of Israel, the scattered house of Israel is referred to as the diaspora. The 12 tribes of Israel were dispersed many times throughout biblical history. 
the ten northern tribes were captured by Assyria and carried away around the year 722 B.C. The Israelites were again scattered around the year 586 when they were removed from Jerusalem and taken into captivity by into Babylonian rule under the under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you may know this, and that's evident, but for some it may, the, may be the first time that you've ever heard it. So, so I'll give you a little explanation, kind of like Tim did, of what I think happened and why Israel is, is scattered. During the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the Israelite people who were living in Jerusalem were captured and taken into Babylon due to the unrepentant hearts. Yahweh had sent many prophets ahead of Nebuchadnezzar to warn them against their destruction, but just like always, Yahweh's just like always, Yahweh's people hardened their hearts and they wouldn't hearken, their, hearken to the voice of the prophets. And they remained in their sin. And so Yahweh caused his servant Nebuchadnezzar to come against them and siege a great majority of them to destroy their temple and haul off them and their, and their you know, prized possessions or the treasures of the temple. Hosea prophesied about this. Let's read a couple passages in Hosea. Give you a second to get there. We'll go to Hosea 1, 6 to start with. We'll go, go through for a, look at a few more verses in Hosea. Hosea 1, 6 says, She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And Yahweh said to, said to him, Name her no compassion, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away. In Hosea 8.8, 8, Hosea prophesies, Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the nations like discarded pottery. And in Hosea 9.3, it says, They will not stay in the land of Yahweh. Instead, Ephraim will return to Egypt, and they will eat unclean food in Assyria. And in, verse, in chapter 9, in verse 15 through 19, it says, All their evils, all their evil appears at Gilgal, for, for there I came to hate them. I will drive them from my house because of their evil, wicked actions. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted. Their roots are withered. They cannot bear fruit. Even, they, even if they bear children, I will kill the precious offspring of their wombs. My... Almighty will reject them because they have not listened to him. They will become wonders amongst the nation. So what Hosea says about them comes to pass. They're carried off into, carried off into Babylon. Now after a while goes by, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and another king takes his place named Cyrus. Well, Cyrus allows all of the Israelites to return to their own land and rebuild Jerusalem. However, many of them did not return. Matter of fact, the majority of them did not return. In reality, only a few of the tribes returned to Jerusalem, and many of them stayed under Cyrus's rule, living amongst the other nations controlled by Cyrus. After Cyrus, several, I guess a couple of kings later, there's a king named Ahasuerus. Most of you are probably familiar with Ahasuerus. He's one of the key characters in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus ruled over 127 provinces, I think from India to Ethiopia. He had 127 provinces. And in these provinces were many, many, many of the Israelites that were left behind that didn't go back. All right? 
And um, in Esther three eight, this just just to prove, if you if you want to turn to the book of Esther, you can do that. Small book. Nehemiah, Esther, Job. I have to do that. Y'all might know where it's at, but I have to. I got an old gang that runs around in my head, so I can remember what book comes after what. But anyway, in, Ezra, in Esther chapter three verse eight, just to prove that the Israelites were still under Ahasuerus' rule and living in Medo-Persian empires, not living in Jerusalem, but they're scattered amongst the nation. Esther is recorded this. Let's look at Esther chapter 3, verse 5, and we'll read 8. It says, When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. He set out to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Judahites, Throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom, in the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day and each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, yet living in isolation, their laws are different from everyone else's so that they defy the king's laws. It's not the king's best interest to tolerate them. Talking about the Israelites, to keep Yahweh's law that's scattered throughout the 127 provinces that are governed by King Ahasuerus. Later on, we know the story. Or, I guess you know the story. Um, they try to kill him, and Esther steps in and just kind of saves the day through her uncle's help, Mordecai. But then around... 63 B.C., Pompey took, this is, this is what Josephus said, Pompey, then around 63 B.C., Pompey took some of the Israelites to Rome as slaves, and Josephus records that one region did not contain the Israelites, but that they inhabited most of the flourishing cities. So you see the Israelites ended up in many different areas of the known world. Further proof that there were Israelites living amongst the nation occurs in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, Many many Israelites were, were there gathered in one place. Some were from Jerusalem, but others from places like Asia and Cappadocia and Mesopotamia and so on. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. We'll read through verse 11. Y'all better be glad that I'm teaching and not somebody else, huh? I got the rap for teaching short sermons around here by Elijah last time, so we'll just keep it true to form, and that way we all get to eat. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. This is news to me, guys. I've studied this passage probably 25 times, and this is, this is, um, this is a testimony how Yahweh reveals things to you in his timing. I've studied this passage probably 25 times, studying the the topic of tongues and things like that to understand this. And it wasn't until this time that I see what I'm about to tell you. But um, maybe it's news to you, maybe it's not. But if, but if it is, that's good. If it's not, well, you, so be it, you get to hear it anyway. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house, filled the whole house where they were staying. 
and tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages, as the Spirit gave them abilities for speech. There were Judaites living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Judites and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own language, the magnificent acts of the Almighty. And they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this be? But some sneered and said, They're full of new wine. From as long, for as long as I remember, I remember thinking that all these people were not Judites, but they were people from other nations. I just thought that that's what they were. For some reason, they show up on the day of Pentecost and that they weren't Judites. These are all Israelite people. Every one of these people that are here, they're Israelite people. They were scattered amongst the nations, but they're all Israelite people coming back into the fold. I used to, maybe it's just me and maybe I'm, I didn't know, but I used to really think that they were just Asian people or people from Cyrene or something like that, and these weren't Israelite people. But I think the scripture right here warns that they were all Israelites that were just scattered. And so on the day of Pentecost, the 3,000 people that are saved are Israelites, just like on the day of Pentecost, the 3,000 people that were killed were all Israelites. You know, at the, at, at, the, at Mount, I mean, uh, Mount Sinai. So, my point is just to say that these people that are coming back in are scattered people. The remnant still exists. The people are still scattered amongst the nations. And that's what happens here in Acts 2, verses 1 through 11. When we read a little further in Acts, after this event at Pentecost, we see that they were scattered again due to severe persecution in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. If you're still in Acts, you flip over with me to Acts 8, verse 1. We'll look at it here. This takes place right after the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was killed. Paul was there. He's a witness. And in Acts 8, verse 1, it says, Saul agreed with the putting him to death. And on that day, that day is the day that Stephen was stoned, on that day, severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. All the Israelites that were there, except the apostles, the believers were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So these people live live amongst amongst all the surrounding cities and stuff. Further, when Paul traveled throughout Asia and Europe, he found that the Judaites were numerous in all the cities, and that they assembled in synagogues and worshipped Yahweh and were joined by proselytes from among the heathens. Also in Paul's speech to King Agrippa, he affirmed that the twelve tribes were still in existence and that they served Yahweh day and night. When, when Paul sets out on his journey through the book of Acts, we see how Paul goes to different churches. These churches that he's going to, or these cities that he's going to, that, to start churches, I guess, so to speak, these are, these are places where the, where the lost, lost tribes of Israel are. That's who he's ministering to. That's, that's what his job is. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 26, verse 6. 
I know it's a lot of scripture, but it's good for us. I'm going to start in verse 4, actually. Acts 26, verse 4. All the Judahites know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time, if they were willing to testify. That, according to the strictest party of our religion, I believed as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by Yahweh to our fathers, the promise our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him day and night. Because of this hope, I am being accused by the Judites. These are the twelve tribes that Paul has been speaking to that are scattered amongst the nations. So these Israelites lived amongst the, amongst the nations and were all brothers by lineage and had just been dispersed or scattered by Yahweh. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 6. We're going to get back to James in just a minute. Let's read it. Yeshua says to go to the lost house, to the to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's commissioning the twelve apostles here. We'll start in we'll start in um let's just start in verse ten one, we'll get the context. It says, Summoning his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Verse 5, Yeshua sent out these twelve after giving them instructions. He says, don't take the road leading to other nations and don't enter into any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who James is writing his letter to, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who Paul went to speak to, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who Yeshua come to minister to. So Paul, James is being obedient. He's an apostle. He's a servant to Yeshua, and he's doing exactly that. He's sending this letter out to the lost house of Israel. I know that modern-day Christianity teaches that Jews are one people and the Gentiles are another. And in some cases, this may be accurate, but for most of the time, when one of the writers in the New Testament uses the word Gentiles, it should be rendered nations. It should be rendered nations to more accurately describe the Israelites and their dispersion. So we determine who are the 12 tribes or who the 12 tribes of the dispersion are, and we see that James is writing his letters to those brothers. Now, there could be a ton more said about this, and maybe one day somebody can teach a sermon on it, Tim. But for now, I just want to give you some of the background on who James is talking to. You, we could talk about this for months. Like you said, what is 50? How long have you been doing it? 50 weeks? Something like that? 50 sermons have been taught on this? Okay. That's a, that's a lot. And uh, I, I just kind of summed it up in, in uh, 10 minutes, so either James Brigham needs to speed up or I need to do a little more thorough study. I'm just, I'm teasing. So now that we know who wrote the letter and who it's wrote to, the next thing James says is in verse 1, he says, Greetings, which simply means be glad, 
rejoice. It's just an opening to the letter. In the South, we say greetings. Paul says greetings, or James says greetings. Now, as promised in my opening, I want to give you an overview of the book before we begin verse by verse the next time I teach. As I said before, I believe James believed in having a living, practicing, everyday faith, a faith that included works. I believe he wrote this letter to the scattered tribes of Israel as an exhortation to them that they not just confess faith, just like we shouldn't just confess faith, but instead that they practice a righteous, working, true, saving faith. The rest of the letter contains the how-to in order to verify their genuine faith. Let's go over the how-tos, and we'll do this kind of quick. This is just a, if you want to make bullet points, if you are taking notes, these are bullet points. It's about 12 that I, that I want to go over, and um, we'll read them in the book of James. We'll read them. But there's about 12 that I want to go over, and, and as I teach, I'll probably cover one bullet point each time, each sermon. And so if you want to read ahead and know what's coming up, you can, uh, you can know ahead of time. All right. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, it teaches us perseverance through trials. The genuine faith finds joy in suffering. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures trials, because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. In verses 13 through 18 of the first chapter, James teaches that true faith accepts responsibility for sin because no one should say, Yahweh is tempting me since we are tempted by our own evil desires. Look at verse 13 through 15. After I talk about them, we'll go over them. Verse 13 through 15 says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by the Almighty. For the Almighty is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Verses 19 through 27, it teaches us that the true faith is, re- is reflected in how you receive the word. That we are to listen and do, not just to hear and forget. We've all heard Arnold quote, Let's be doers of the law, not just hearers only, deceiving our own selves. We've heard that hundreds of times. But how many people take it to part, to heart, and learn how to talk? How many people take that to heart? Why? Why should we? Why shouldn't we? We shouldn't just throw that to the side. Let's be hearers of the word, you know, and doers of it. Not not that we just hear it, but we also be doers. If we don't, we just deceive our own self. Let's read, read verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his face, his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and right away forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom, and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts, this person will be blessed in what he does. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, teaches us that you, that you treat others, the way you, how you treat others is a mark of true faith. That we don't show favoritism, but love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's read verses 
8 and 9 of the second chapter. If you really carry out the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors, as transgressors. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 is my favorite part where James teaches the true faith is not without works, as he mentions twice that faith without works is dead. Let's read verses 17 through 20. In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone would say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my show you faith from my works. You believe that Yahweh is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Foolish man, are you foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed the Almighty and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called Yahweh's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, it teaches us that true faith practices self-control, such as in taming of the tongue, which can corrupt the whole body and is full of deadly poison. Look at chapter 3, and uh, we'll read 6 through 8. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. For every creature, animal or bird, reptile or fish, is tamed and has been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, it teaches us, teaches us that true faith practices humble wisdom, that we should have our knowledge, that we should have our knowledge in humility, not in strife. At chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. Who is wise and understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom and gentleness. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and lie in defiance of the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every kind of evil. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, warns us that a friend of the world is an enemy of Yahweh. Let's look at verses 4 through 10. Read them. Adulteresses, do you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards Yahweh? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes Yahweh's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason, without reason the scripture says that the spirit he has caused to live in us yearns jealousy but he gives greater peace a greater grace therefore he says the almighty resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble therefore submit to the almighty but resist the devil and he will flee from you 
draw near to the Almighty, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, teaches that true faith believes in the sovereignty of Yahweh and that only his will is done. That's probably one of my favorite ones. I believe that true faith does believe that Yahweh is sovereign and only his will will be accomplished. It doesn't matter what your will is. His will is the only one that will be accomplished. Let's look at, uh, look at verses 14 through 15 of the fourth chapter. It says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are a bit of smoke that appears for a little while and then you vanish. Instead, you should say, if Yahweh wills, we will live and do this or that. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 teaches that true faith will have patient endurance, that we should be waiting on the hope of the return of the Messiah, not the cares of this world, and that we are to remain truthful until then, by our yes, until then, by our yes being yes and our no being no. In, in the fifth chapter, let's look at verses uh, seven through nine, and then we'll read verse twelve. It says, "Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because." The Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. And in verse 12 it says, Now above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. Your yes but must be yes, and your no must be no, so that you won't fall under judgment. And last, but especially not least, Verses 13 through the end teach us that true faith practices prayer earnestly. Let's read 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of Yahweh. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The intense prayer of the righteous is very powerful. Now, I know that um, I know we kind of run through these things, but like I said, it's just an overview of the teachings of the book. If you, I've got I've got a list of how I'm going to teach this. Here and if somebody wants it, if you couldn't take notes, I know it's quick. If you couldn't take notes, let me know and and uh, I'll give it to you. If you want to study and if you don't, you can take notes as we go or whatever. It doesn't matter to me. But if you're interested, I've got it and I can make a copy of it for you and give it to you. But um, I hope that you'll begin reading this book in your study time. And so when we come to the when, we, when I do teach on it, you'll have some kind of idea about what's going on. You may already know, but um. It's a short book, and you read it a bunch of times, and I just hope you look forward to to learning about it. Um, I hope you look forward to learning how to have this true saving faith, one that one with works that will grant us those blessed words from our Master.
well done. Enter in, you faithful servant. But um, that's it. I just wanted to give you guys and give you guys a start of what we would would cover in the upcoming weeks, and um, I look forward to teaching it, and I look forward to studying it. For me, I've learned a lot in just teaching the first chapter. So uh, I mean, the first verse of the first chapter. So there's a lot there's a lot to be gleaned from it. It's kind of like um, it, Matthew taught one time on the book of First John. It talked about the talked about the test that you could you know you could test yourself and and see if you're in the faith. And um, I think the book of James is, is similar. It tells you, you know, what shows you what true faith is. So I think that it'll be good. It'll be a, it'll be a good study and be something for everybody to, that'll edify everybody, and, and um, we can all grow and learn from it. Thanks for hearing me. And do you want me to pray? All right. Do you want me to ask, thank, give thanks for the food before we eat it? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father. I thank you for your many blessings. I thank you for the opportunity to stand here on the day of Pentecost, the day that you set out long ago for us to to keep and to uh, worship on, to gather together, Father. I pray and long for the time that you restore your kingdom here. And I and I I pray and uh, I just pray that it would come soon, Father, that we would that your son would uh, set up his kingdom and that it would it would righteousness would be here on the earth and that that um that we would return to the to Jerusalem to celebrate your feast, Father. We, I just pray that it would hurry and that it would be here, Father. Until then, I pray that you keep every one of us um, out of harm's way and keep us safe. And Father, just just love us unconditionally, like we know that you already do. And Father, I just um, pray that we would serve you with all our hearts, that we would give everything that we have to you, Father. That we would that we would sell out solely to you and let the world pass by while we serve you. Father, as for the food, we give you thanks before we eat. Thanks for it, and uh, just pray that you use it to strengthen us and that we might be better service, servants to you, Father, kind of like James was. Father, we love you, and we ask all these things in your precious and holy son's name. Amen.